From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello, friends, and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement. It's my pleasure to be with you today for this special edition of Washington Watch. In October of this year, the Montgomery County Public Schools, Maryland's largest public school district, reported a 582% increase in the number of students identifying as gender nonconforming in two years. Of course, this raises questions about the degree to which social pressure and cultural influences are the real source of transgender identities. But transgender identities are exploding, particularly among young people. A study from the Williams Institute at the UCLA Law School found that one in five people who identify as transgender are between the ages of 13 and 17. The issue is also much more likely to affect adolescent girls. According to a study in the International Journal of Transgender Health, female adolescents are two and a half to seven times more likely to begin gender transition than their male counterparts. Gender transition clinics in the U.S. have told Reuters that around two-thirds of their patients are female, and that Europe, Canada, and Australia are seeing similar trends. Now, for most, transgenderism is largely a cultural phenomenon with political implications. But for many families, this is very personal because it is your children, your sons, your daughters, and your grandchildren who are being affected. And today's program is for you. In today's special edition of Washington Watch, we're going to explore a difficult but increasingly important question. How should we as parents respond to a child who says, Mom, Dad, I was born in the wrong body. My physical body does not reflect my actual identity. I know I was born female, but I'm actually a boy. We'll, we'll be joined by Dr. Quentin Van Meter, president of the American College of Pediatrics. We will also be joined by Kathy Grace Duncan, who has personal insights into this situation, having lived as a man for 11 years. All of that coming up in the program. But first, we're going to speak with my colleague, Dr. Jennifer Bowens, who has worked extensively as a clinician to better understand what gender dysphoria is. How prevalent is it? Why has it become such a common issue? All of this and more. As you may know, Jennifer is also FRC's Director of the Center for Family Studies. Dr. Bowens, good to see you today. Good to be with you, Joseph. Now, we're going to start at the beginning and, and take our time with this to help people understand what exactly is happening here. And, and we talk about gender dysphoria. So at the start, how do you think parents should think about what gender dysphoria is in the event that their child comes to them and says, hey, I know I was born male, but I'm actually a girl. That's a great question. Um, well, the first thing we need to sort of grapple with is what is gender dysphoria? And when we look at the diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria, that's in the DSM-5 TR, um, what we see is that it's described as this incongruence that a person has with their biological sex and how they're identifying with their um biological sex or lack thereof. Um, and what we know is that from both a, a biblical standpoint and really a solid clinical standpoint, because all the, all the research really indicates that this is, um, a, 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 the treatments are a falsehood. 
so if you have a child that comes to you and expresses this, and let's say they didn't go through a clinical uh, treatment or a clinical diagnosis for this, is that we need to think about who has God created them to be? That's first and foremost, Joseph. Um, who? What is their identity in God? And we need to start thinking about gender identity as as a defense mechanism, really, as something that is meant to hide who God created that person to be. And we know the good news is that Proverbs says that a wise man knows how to scale a wall and get behind uh, a person's trusted defenses. So we can rely on the Holy Spirit to give us the unique wisdom that we need to reach each person. Now, Dr. Bounds, you talked there about the the clinical and the, the diagnostic um the, the way that you as clinicians understand and diagnose gender dysphoria. And that's kind of the old clinical term. Today we hear the term transgender much more commonly, and they are used synonymously to be sure. Are they actually synonyms? Should we be thinking of transgenderism always as a case of gender dysphoria? That's right. I think that there's really a call for research to examine this new cohort of people uh, you mentioned in your intro about young women who are identifying as transgender. And this is a very different population than what has historically been um, a diagnostic criteria for, for mostly young boys. So what we have is this new phenomenon arising and we don't have a great understanding or even an appetite to research what is going on with um, what we've historically termed gender dysphoria. So who are these people and uh, why are these young women um, suddenly identifying in, in such an exponential rate? So I think, um, you know, we can certainly come up with some reasons um, on this program. We've, we've seen this rise uh, and this push in the schools. Um, we've seen a social contagion. And also, you know, we can think developmentally what happens to young girls and young boys as they're trying to figure out their identity, right? We we often see young girls um, struggling with their body. Um, we see higher rates of anorexia and more recently young men as well. Um, so all that to say, there are a number of social pressures that come to play at this vul very vulnerable age where you're having schools and leaders push, hey, you know, here's this idea that maybe the reason you're not comfortable in your body is because of this, maybe you're trans, right? So is it fair to say, because gender dysphoria has been with us for a very long time, and of course, this experience of, you know, cross-dressing, transsexualism, there are lots of different terms that have been applied to this, but that's been around for a long time. It's the, the, it's, it's the frequency with which we see it appearing in people's lives that, that seems to have increased a lot lately. Is it fair to say then for a parent or a grandparent who's dealing with this in their family that just because a child identifies as transgender and increasingly they're saying they're non-binary, right? They're saying that this non-binary, we don't know how to define that term, but there's a dramatic increase in the identity in the number of those identifying as non-binary, which doesn't require a diagnosis, certainly of gender dysphoria, and it doesn't even require someone to say I 
I'm born male, but I actually feel like a female. They're just saying I kind of feel non-binary. Does that mean that we need to think about transgenderism and uh, gender dysphoria as separate categories? Right. Um, well, this is what we're seeing is that there are two tracks to uh, someone saying they have this identity. And one is they're coming through uh, a clinical setting and they get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. The other is that they're just hearing about it, maybe in a school setting, um, maybe with their friends on social media, and they can easily call Planned Parenthood or call, um, in some cases, uh, in, in telehealth and begin uh, hormone treatments or, um, in some cases, puberty blockers. So this is a very dangerous prospect because what happens with this ideology is it becomes this grand theory by which any kind of um, disharmony that you're experiencing in your body can immediately be attributed to um, transgenderism. And this is, um, this is dangerous too for the clinical setting because it puts a chilling effect on the clinician who's unable to do a proper assessment because there's this social pressure on, um, on clinicians to, to affirm and, you know, to not quote unquote be bigoted. Uh, if if you're actually investigating and in, in looking at the the underlying issues that a child might be dealing with, and Dr. Bowens, you are a trauma specialist, and, and you talk there about trying to understand the underlying issue. And it seems that we are now operating in an environment where to suggest there is an underlying issue is itself a form of bigotry, because that then assumes that there's some kind of problem here for that child. What is your experience? Does this actually come from trauma? Is that a way to solve this problem? How common is that? And are we really operating in an environment where clinicians feel pressure to ignore any underlying causes? Yeah, and I would say yes to many of those things. That <laughs> um, uh, what we're what we're dealing with is um, we have two different age groups of those who are uh, saying that they have a transgender identity, and certainly with the older cohort, I think you would see uh, more people who would uh, say that they've experienced trauma. With this newer cohort, it's a little harder to see the full extent of what's going on with, with the children, um, who, the young women in particular, because there are these other influences. There's a huge ideological and social push. So we have this whole other generation that we, we don't know enough about, um, how they're coming to this place of, of transgender identity. Um, we certainly, like I said before, we certainly have a lot of indicators that show us there's something going on in our culture that's pushing this. Um, but, but yes, I mean, trauma is certainly, um, a huge component and we can see that from the Williams Institute and some of their own survey data and the number of people who, who express childhood traumas. So, this is really a disservice to the people that um, that are identifying with transgender ideology um, or an identity because uh, we're not helping them treat the real issues. And they're just going to have to deal with it later on down the road. And, and in fact, there's a study by Lisa Lippman where she looked at those who had uh, detransitioned and 
many of them, um, I, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but it, um, in some cases, over 50 percent would just would say that their mental health assessment wasn't um, wasn't complete. Um, that they had childhood abuse that was really the contributing factor for why they said they had a, a transgender identity. So this is this is a huge problem and a huge disservice to this population. Dr. Bounds, in about 60 seconds, what do you tell a parent who comes to you and says, my son thinks he's a daughter, what should I do? Yeah, so we need to be clear in our own selves that this is not how God made a person to be, that he does have a destiny and a true identity for which he created every person. And um, we need to maintain that in ourselves. And one, we need to pray for, um, pray for these young people, pray and believe that God can heal anybody and he can change the heart. And so um, with faith and patience, we hold on to to the belief that he will change them. And one, we as we pray, we, we know that our prayers are powerful and effective. And even if it's not a conversation that we have directly with them, we, we know that we can pray and change a person's situation. And as I said, each person is unique. And sometimes we, we, not just sometimes, we always need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to interact and to know how to get behind those trusted defenses because this Dr. is Jennifer a, a wall. Yeah, we are, we are out of time, unfortunately. We're <laughs> going to continue this conversation, but I have to let you go for now. Thank you, as always, for your time. Merry Christmas, Joseph. Have a good one. Coming up right after the break, Dr. Quentin Van Meter will join us from the American College of Pediatrics. We'll continue this conversation. Don't go anywhere. Today, there are countless news outlets and so much opposing information. It can be hard to find a source you can really trust. This is why Family Research Council created the Washington Stand, an online daily news outlet that provides news and commentary on the biggest issues of the day. All written from a biblical worldview. Find credible reporting at WashingtonStand.com so that you know how to stand firm in our day. Again, stay informed by visiting WashingtonStand.com. It is so important for God's children to spend time with Him in His Word, but it can be difficult to know where to start. We know that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. That is why Family Research Council offers their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. This plan will help you read the Bible daily so you can be transformed by God's Word. Sign up today by visiting frc.org Bible. Attention university students, are you looking to be equipped as a Christian leader and to influence the culture from a biblical worldview? Join us at Family Research Council for our internship program. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, you will grow personally and professionally. This paid 12 to 15 week program is designed to give you real world experience and to prepare you for wherever God calls you. Apply today at frc.org internships. Persecution of Christians is growing globally and becoming more aggressive every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares stories from those who have faced religious persecution and takes a close look at the tragic circumstances Christians often face due to threatening opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of real perseverance and devotion offer encouragement and hope. 
Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies behind the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the plight of these faithful believers. It is important for us to learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer deeply and do what we can to help them. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. With FRC's Stand Firm app, you will have access to all of our content right at your fingertips. The Stand Firm app provides you with a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and Washington Stand articles. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that matter to you. Visit the App Store on your mobile device and search Stand Firm to download FRC's Stand Firm app. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. We're continuing our conversation on a tough topic. What is a Christian parent to do when your son tells you that he was born in the wrong body and is actually your daughter? One Christian groups of doc, group of doctors are directly addressing these types of heartbreaking questions, and one of them joins me now. Dr. Quentin Van Meter is here to discuss how parents should deal with gender dysphoria from a clinical perspective. He serves as president of the American College of Pediatricians. Dr. Van Meter, welcome back to Washington Watch. Glad to be here once again. Thank you. Now, first, at the highest level, we're talking to parents, we're talking to grandparents, we're talking to families today. We often talk about the political implications of this, but today we're talking about how this works in people's lives. What's the first thing you think families need to know who find themselves dealing with the situation? Well, for the, the first thing is to be uh, understanding and compassionate and realize that there is something amiss in this child's life that would uh, lead them to believe that they were somehow born in the wrong body, that they sort of detest who they biologically are, uh, are trying to avoid being biologically who they are, and that it basically falls on the shoulders of, of mental health uh, issues and not, not anything that's predetermined genetically. Uh, it is, you know, a mix of environment and circumstances. Uh, people in the field of gender affirmation are, are attempting to find a biologic basis for uh, an incongruence between a biologic sex, uh, which is, is determined at the moment of, of fertilization, uh, not just assigned at birth, as they, they tend to call it. Uh, and and what, what is in, in the environment? And, and so the, the idea is that to save this child from suffering, um, you need to really address those issues, those undercurrent issues, uh, and be careful. And you have a lot of time on your hands to do this. Um, there is always an expressed threat of suicide if you don't rush right in um, and sort of affirm this child in their incongruent gender. And the answer to that is, no, that actually is not the scientific truth. There is no real validity to that. It's used as a sort of a sledgehammer to get things going at warp speed, get the child into a system which is essentially designed to medically and surgically uh, change them for their lifetime and create incredible amounts of uh, me medical and, and emotional morbidity uh, and, unfortunately, to mutilate their bodies. Dr. Van Meter, you 
refer there to what's happening uh, within the medical profession and what a lot of families encounter when they seek help. And the challenge for parents who are not probably experts on this issue is they have no idea who to turn to. And we hear all these stories about medical professionals who are, who are for personal or professional or perhaps even financial reasons, pushing children to transition. What's your advice to a parent who says, hey, I, I want to be compassionate. I want to be understanding. I want to listen. I want to deal with root causes and try to find out what those are. But I want to do so in an environment where I'm being consulted and my child is being advised by somebody who maybe shares our biblical worldview or is at least not going to rush them into some kind of social and then medical transition as quickly as possible. How does a parent find somebody like that? Well, we would always invite them to come to the website of the American College of Pediatricians. It's www. Uh, capital A, capital C, capital P, EDS, ACPEDS.org. Uh, and that we have a wealth of information in terms of educating the parents, uh, helping them understand. And also we have a network of, uh, mental health providers we can, we can regionally, uh, get them connected to, to, to understand really the basis of what's going on. And I, I would state, uh, that our organization, although we, many of us and perhaps the majority of us are very faith-based individuals, our organization is a, is a strictly secular organization in terms of its welcoming, uh, people of all beliefs or no particular religious faith to, to take good care of children based on the best possible science. And so it's a, it's a good place to come because we are, really striving so so incredibly to avoid sort of the political whims, if you will, of of the newness and the, the, the current excitement of the transgender affirmation industry. And you refer to that well, the excitement of the transgender industry, uh, because it certainly does appear that this has become much more popular in a very quick period of time. How would you encourage parents to interpret that, to understand uh, what is happening culturally that may have caught up their specific child? Well, we always tend to understand that when we hit on a hot button issue, it's where we get most of the blowback almost instantly from folks who don't really believe the same set of values that we do. Uh, and that is the internet is really responsible for uh, the access of these kids to information uh, that their parents are really not necessarily aware of. Uh, information that is uh, is essentially dangerous and brings these kids into a world, almost a cult-like world of of uh, of an affirmation of their wonderfulness only if they accept the fact they're born in the wrong body. Uh, so it's it kids are very vulnerable uh, in their in their young teen years, and this is a particular recent uh, you know situation where adolescents who had absolutely no. Uh, expression of any uh, dissatisfaction with their the sex they were born uh, in terms of, of playing the, the social roles from the spectrum of uh, one end to the other, effeminate to to masculine. They they knew who they were biologically, and that's kind of how they lived and how they thrived. But now there is this this sense of uh, born in the wrong body. This is a is a wonderful opportunity for you to shed all of your um, angst, if you will, of growing up through puberty. Uh, and join a group where people will just love you because 
uh, you're new and special, and and you can come and you can jettison your biologic family. Uh, they're no good. They don't want to support you. They're your enemy, but we're your friend. And so that to a troubled teenager who is, you know, what what teenager has not been troubled during the the uh, progress through puberty? Uh, it, it's a rarity to find a child who comes through that unscathed. You give them an opportunity for this false sense of relief and happiness in this new what we call glitter world, if you will. Uh, you know, jettison your family, come join ours online. We'll love you unconditionally. Your parents are mean and, and, and not supportive. We are very supportive. Come, come here and be happy. Uh, and that invites these poor, vulnerable kids into an environment which is very, very dangerous for them. And it's not just their peers or the community they develop online that will tell them this. In many cases, is it is now their teachers, their, uh, their counselors at school, and in many cases, their doctors as yes. well. Uh, we are going to continue this conversation with Dr. Van Meter from the American Academy of Pediatrics, American College of Pediatrics, excuse me, when we return right after the break. Stay with us for this important conversation. It is so important for God's children to spend time with Him in His Word. But at times, knowing where to start can prove difficult. And for some, creating a habit of reading the Word daily is even harder. That is why Family Research Council offers their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily, so you can understand the nature of God, how His Word speaks into cultural issues, and grow closer to Him. We know that the Word of God is rich, for it is written that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. And so it is important for believers to read the Word and apply it to everyday life. God's Word is powerful, but we don't have to be overwhelmed or intimidated at the thought of reading it. We can explore the Word with other believers so that we may better understand it and be transformed by it together. Join us by signing up today to get the daily passages and questions. Just go to frc.org Bible. In today's culture, men need a battle plan, a call to biblical manhood, where they can be reminded of God's design for them to serve as provider, instructor, battle buddy, defender, and chaplain. Family Research Council's Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin and Dr. Keenan Curtin's new book, Strong and Courageous, a sequel to Man to Man, offers this battle plan for men on how to take on their God-given responsibility in a culture swiftly turning away from God's design. The authors present the Old Testament book of Joshua and his leadership as the focus of their study, asking readers to consider and apply the key principles of biblical manhood. Now is the time for men to take on their role in the family and society and truly live out their God-given purpose. To purchase your copy of Strong and Courageous, A Call to Biblical Manhood, go to frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Again, that's frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony as we have this special edition of Washington Watch where we are considering what you should do as a parent, as a grandparent, when someone you love comes to you and says, I'm transgender. I was born in the wrong body. Dr. Van Meter, welcome back. Thank you. Now, we were, before the break, discussing the various influences that 
have led to the social contagion that we're seeing. You mentioned the online communities that young people are finding that you think is a significant contributor to this situation. What's the right way for parents to respond to this situation? Should they just cut off Internet access uh, to stop that from happening? Because this, this is a challenge even for, you know, for every, everybody who has a teenager is dealing with uh, challenges of technology and access to the Internet. What do you recommend uh, for parents in that situation? Well, I, I would say the parents should monitor what's going on with the Internet with their children. I think that makes a lot of sense. There, there's not really a reason why a child has to have uh, access to the Internet in their in their bedroom, their private space, uh, 24-7. It, there needs to be a monitoring of what's going on and perhaps a cutting off. Uh, I know some parents say, hey, it's uh, 10 p.m. on a school night. Uh, give me your devices. You know, we're going to shut down the internet uh, to, so you don't have access to it. That's not mean and, and, and mean spirited. That's a, actually a, a pretty good way to handle that. I think proactively, if, if the kid, the parents know what the issues are, where, what the kid, kids may be facing, and the transgender issue has come up so much in their face that they should have a, a sort of a proactive discussion, saying, "Hey." You know, we've never discussed this, uh, you know, but I just kind of wanted to know how you feel about it and say that to your child and say, could, could we talk about it? I want to be open about it. If you have any concerns about, you know, your friends or, or perhaps a personal experience that you just aren't willing to necessarily share, we want to be open about sharing it with you so that, you know, we, we go through things together as a family. You know, we're your support group. You know, we, we love you unconditionally. Yeah. Uh, we disagree. You know, we have rules. You may not like them, but, you know, let's make sure that this does not happen in the background for just for lack of, of paying attention. And I'll say in our house, at least, the devices are uh, gone long before 10 o'clock at <laughs> night, Dr. Van Meter. But I think okay. some boundaries are certainly yeah. appropriate. Now, you hinted at some of these, but I'll ask the question very directly. What is the wrong way for a parent to respond in this situation? Undoubtedly very emotional, perhaps very surprised. They hear this news from their, from their child. What's the wrong way to respond? I think if you isolate the child from everybody they know and say you can't go out at all, you know, you're, you're going to be imprisoned uh, under my watchful eye so that I can essentially control everything you do, that's a really bad message to give the kid, uh, especially the adolescent child, uh, in the midst of, the, of their, their wanting to gain some autonomy and, and sort of discover things. It's just I think the, you know, to be angry, to be punitive, uh, to discipline them physically, um, to threaten them with, uh, with harm in any way uh, is, is absolutely the wrong way to go. These kids literally are crying out for help. This is a cry for help. This is, this is a saying, I, I am in such deep anguish and, and depression and anxiety, I don't know where to go. Uh, and I'm trying to go someplace, and, and the transgender things seem to be the right place. I think they just need to discover. And, you know, this is an issue where families can be dysfunctional uh, and, and often are. And they're sort of essentially a part of the problem. And, and I think they, the, the parent needs to say, you know, uh, I'm not a perfect parent. Uh, I, may, I may have sent my child toward this rabbit hole by things that I have unwittingly done or didn't mean to do in, in any harmful way. But I may be part of the problem. And I think I need to be open to the fact that, I, I need to accept any role I have had in this child's anxiety and depression and an unsettled uh, sense of self. Uh, and so they, they, they should say, 
I would like to seek help and I would like to seek help for you. And we need to do this together because, you know, we are a family and we will cherish each other from our first breath until our last. And, and I do not want to see harm come to you. Dr. Van Meter, you are the president of the American College of Pediatrics. There is another American Academy of Pediatricians, and they have a very different perspective than you do on this issue. Parents who are looking for help will undoubtedly find very different perspectives. How do you as a clinician, as someone who cares about young people, explain why parents will find such different advice when it comes to how they handle the situation? Well, the American Academy of Pediatrics has um, has essentially turned into sort of a political advocacy group. Yes, they do maintain a lot of wonderful um, educational stuff for the pediatricians. They do come out with some general policies about wellness for children and whatnot, but they have been threaded with uh, a lot of political beliefs and and, uh, and lean uh, toward not so much the family, but just... Uh, you know, the kid is an autonomy individual who really doesn't necessarily need the parents. Uh, the the whole adolescent, um, you know, secrecy situation where don't share anything with your parents that you don't want to. Uh, you don't have to do that. Uh, they're the bad a- you know, actors in the first place. That That's the attitude that comes across. Uh, and it, it's it's not really, it's not, it's doing more harm than it is good. It's, it's, you know, the, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics was not built to essentially uh, become a, a completely political organization, but it really has morphed into that over the past 30 years. And, and that's, that's the sad thing. There's, there's stuff that is basically for the benefit of adults at, at the expense of children. Dr. Quentin Van Meter, president of the American College of Pediatrics, thanks so much for your time. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And remember that if you're looking for help, the American College of Pediatricians is where you want to go for information. Don't go anywhere. You won't want to miss my next conversation with Kathy Grace Duncan. She shares her own experience having lived as a man for 11 years. She'll tell you what she has to say to parents facing a situation like hers. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Today, there are countless news outlets and so much opposing information. It can be hard to find a source you can really trust. This is why Family Research Council created the Washington Stand, FRC's online news platform with a goal to provide readers with honest, free, and timely news stories and commentaries, all from a biblical worldview. The Washington Stand is based in Washington, D.C., with a team of reporters who provide reliable information on the top issues of the day, They cover breaking news on the biggest Supreme Court decisions, share critical stories in public education, give updates on the state of religious liberty domestically and abroad, and more. The Washington Stand was created to keep you and your family informed on events that are affecting faith, family, and freedom. Stay informed and stand firm in truth by visiting WashingtonStand.com today. Again, that's WashingtonStand.com. Are you a university student or do you know a university student? One looking to be equipped as a Christian leader and to learn how to promote faith, family, and freedom in public policy and the culture? Join us at Family Research Council for our 12 to 15 week internship program. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, you will grow in personal and professional development. 
you will have the opportunity to work in a variety of departments with positions ranging from policy to communications, allowing you to gain real-world experience working directly with our experts. FRC seeks to guide interns in pursuing careers of influence so they can make a difference wherever God calls them. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to grow in community and experience the city. Take the next step in your professional journey and have the experience of a lifetime. Visit FRC.org slash internships to apply. When persecution comes, will you be prepared to stand? Throughout Scripture, believers are told that they should expect to be persecuted. In John, Jesus warns his disciples that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. With that knowledge, Christians shouldn't live in fear, but they ought to prepare their hearts to stand faithfully in the face of trials. Most Christians in the U.S. feel far removed from the threat of persecution, but Pastor Andrew Brunson knows persecution well. In October 2016, Brunson was held for two years in Turkish prisons after being falsely accused of terrorism. After a worldwide prayer movement and significant political pressure from the U.S. government, he was released in October 2018. And since then, Andrew has taken up the call to urge Christians in the West to prepare for hostility. Brunson led an eight-part video series titled Prepare to Stand to help fellow believers. Watch this important series by going to frc.org slash prepare to stand. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. And on today's show, we are asking the question, how should you respond when your daughter says she is your son? We've talked to Dr. Jennifer Bowens and Dr. Quentin Van Meter to get their professional perspectives on this issue. And now we're going to talk to someone for whom this issue is much more personal. Kathy Grace Duncan is a woman who lived 11 years of her life identifying as a man. What did she learn? What would she say to a parent whose child says they are transgender? We're going to talk about that now. Kathy Grace, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you. So glad to have you. And to catch listeners up who may not be aware, just tell us a bit of your story. Sure. So from a very young age, starting like age three and four, I um, had the desire to live as a man. I felt that I was born in the wrong body. I felt that I should have been a boy. And so I had that perspective growing up all through grade school, junior high, middle school, um, and high school. And finally, at the age of 19, after I graduated out of high school, at the age of 19, changed my name, started taking hormones, and started living as a man. And as you mentioned, I did that for 11 years. Um, Okay. Yeah. I, I want to just get some detail. What do you attribute that to? Um, anything that you now look back on? Because, again, that's very early, and we, we hear a lot of stories like this happening now. It seems much more common now. But as you reflect back on yourself as a three- and a four-year-old, what do you attribute that to? Well, and so now, hindsight, I see where um, my dad was verbally and emotionally abusive to my mom. And so I looked at that, and then I saw my mom, how she was the victim of that abuse, and I saw her crumble underneath that. So that gave me the messages from my dad that women are weak, women are hated, and women are vulnerable. And if I'm a girl, that means I'm going to grow up, and I could be treated like that. So that told me that that's not safe. And then also, my little brother was born when I was seven, and he was adored. So I thought, you know what, to be a boy, I... 
I, you know, I should be a dork, so I have to be a boy. And then also between the ages of 10 and 12, I was sexually molested by a family member, which really cemented in women are weak, women are vulnerable, and women are hated. Because why else would I want to, you know, why would I want to grow up and be like that? And um, it was not safe to be a woman, and I wanted to be safe. So with those, you know, background and the rejection and the abandonment involved behind the scenes as well, that just told me that being a man was a much better choice than living as a woman for the rest of my life. So you made that transition, you say, at about 19 years of age. You spent 11 years living as a man. Uh, What happened in the course of that 11 years? So, um, you know, I met a girl, dated, um, we were probably together, I don't know, five or six years. And then when we broke up, I immediately went into a rebound relationship. And in this rebound relationship, I woke up one morning and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm my mom or she's my mom and I'm my dad. And I'm like, I, I don't want to be that man. So I broke up with her and in breaking up with her, I was already involved in the church, in the, um, orchestra. So I decided to get more involved in church. And in doing so, one night on my way to orchestra, the Lord called to me and he said, will you now? Will you now? And I take a look at my life and I'm like, hmm, I have nothing to lose. You know, I I should do this. So I said, yes, Lord, I will. And from that point, for the next four years, the Lord continually wooed me and I got more involved at church more involved in ministry. And I really just came to love the Lord and um, serving. I was, you know, I led a men's Bible study. I was serving in the junior high ministry. I had a small group of boys. I was in the college age group. I was in the single adults group everywhere. I thought the Lord would be, that's where I was. And then um, at the 11 year mark, um, I, the Lord had brought a, um, some spiritual parents and they, the spiritual dad, I didn't know it at the time, but the Lord was really using him to work on my dad's stuff, on my dad issues. And, um, I had just come home from a junior high retreat and, uh, he came up to me and he said, can I talk to you? And I'm like, yeah. So I followed him. And in the midst of that question, I'm like, I think I'm going to be confronted. So I followed him back behind the sanctuary And there was the pastor of the college age group who I knew he was my friend. And when I entered the room, I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. I'm going to be confronted. So I sat down and Dave asked me, the pastor asked me, he said, you know, we're hearing these rumors about you. I just want to know who are you? Who are you really? And at that moment, I spoke the truth and I said, I'm a woman living as a man. Now, prior to that, I would always claim that I was a man who used to be a woman. But when I proclaimed the truth, the Holy Spirit blew into me. It was like this. And I was like, whoa, what just happened? And I saw that I needed to go back to being the woman that God created me to be. And I loved the Lord so much that I wanted that relationship that I had longed for. And I, I realized that was the thing I needed to do. So that night I started the journey out of living as a man and going back to being um, the woman that God created me to be. And um, that was, you know, I'm coming up on 30 years of walking that out. The first five years was hard, you know, because it was figuring out how do I embrace being a woman? What does the Lord say about being a woman? Working through the rejection, looking at the truth of that, looking at what that said to me. 
looking at the molestation, you know, sexual abuse carries some pretty heavy hitting lies about who you are and that it's your fault. And, you know, you deserve this, you wanted this, um, as well as looking at all the degrading comments that my dad said that I took on as they were true about me, though he was saying them to my mom. I thought these have to be true of me because I'm a girl. So working through those lies, putting in the truth, um, still seeking the Lord. And then, you know, it was like the inside needed to change first, because at the very beginning, I begged the Lord over and over and over, Lord, you're calling me to be this woman. Help me to be this woman. Do you see all these changes that need to happen? And I was talking about physical changes, you know, getting rid of the beard and, you know, having my hair grow back and la la la. I had my whole laundry list. And finally the Lord spoken to that. And he said, yeah, I don't care about those things. I'm like, okay, but you are calling me back to being this woman. You don't care about these things. And he's like, no, I'm after your heart. And so once I realized that, then it was like, okay, I, I need to figure out how to continue to surrender my heart. And those things that rise to the top means that the Lord isn't the Lord in there. So how do I get the Lord over those things? So for the first five years, it was a constant state of surrender and embracing who he said I was and who I knew to go back to being. This is a, a such a powerful story. And I know there's so much there. Uh, that unfortunately today we don't have the time to get into all of that. But when you tell your story now, given how hot this issue is culturally and politically, what kind of response do you get from those who continue to maintain a transgender identity? Well, I, you know, I understand it. There's a fierceness in there. They think that they need to fight for who they are, but they really don't understand that they're deceived. And The deception runs deep. I mean, I bought into it hook, line, and sinker. I believed those lies, saying that it's safer to be a man. Being a woman is not safe. I I bought that. And then anybody who came against that, they were my enemy automatically. They were my enemy. Parents, they were my enemy. Friends, they were my enemy. So I cut out a lot of people out of my life. You know, and only those people who affirmed or agreed with me were allowed in. Mm -hmm. You know, because I I knew who I was or I believed, you know, I thought I knew who I was. But when I embraced the truth, I came to understand that there's all these underlying issues that need to be dealt with. There is rejection, abandonment and abuse. And those, like I said previously, they are heavy hitting lies that come in there. You know, a rejection, it trickles out through your through your life everywhere. So it's looking beyond what they're saying and understanding that what we're seeing is fruit of a deeper woundedness. There's unmet needs, you know, legitimate needs that went, that are in there that have gone unmet. And so now they're trying to, as adults, I know I was trying to figure out how do I get this need met? How do I get that fulfillment of love? How do I get that nurturing that I never got from my mom because she couldn't give it being, you know, the victim of abuse So it's continuing to look at those things. And rather than, you know, transgenderism, in fact, the whole LGBTQ thing is, you know, those are just behaviors. And again, they're things that represent there's deeper things going on underneath. And it's picking out through those things. Because once I worked through the rejection and I worked through the abandonment and I worked through the abuse and I got the truth in there, I wanted to go back. You know, changing back, you know, it was like, oh, this is, I can do this. 
because they're all heart issues. It's an, you know, it's like, it's an emotional issue. It's not a sexual issue. It's an emotional issue. And you're trying to get those, those emotional things, um, fixed by finding, you know, who I am in the deception, you know, and the enemy is all too willing to tell you who you are, <laughs> as long as it's marring the image of God. He's very willing to do that. Uh, Kathy, we're speaking into Kathy Grace Duncan about her story of living 11 years as a man before um, finding her identity in Christ and, and ultimately uh, returning to identity as a woman. And Kathy Grace, specifically today on the program, we're talking to parents who are increasingly finding themselves in this situation where their daughter will come to them and say, I'm, I'm really a boy. What would you say to a parent who uh, surprisingly finds themselves in that situation? Sure. So I, I think it's okay to tell your child, you know what, I need to catch up with you. You've just poured this on my lap and I need, I need time to kind of process this. You know, because that transgender child has been dealing with that issue for a long time. And maybe they have just now gotten the courage to tell the parent. At the same time, the parent, um, you can't fix them. There's no fix to them. It's going after those root issues. And sometimes that takes time. You need to restore that, it, that relationship with them. Because there's a, there's a point where that trust got broken. And I don't know what that point is. But there was something that happened where they're not going to open up to you. And if they are open to you, then press in and ask them questions like, why do you think being a boy is better? What's wrong with being a girl? Um, you know, what are those things that have been telling you that being who you are is not okay, that you need to be something else? Do you not feel safe? Also, figuring out where are they on the internet? Because we have TikTok, we have Tumblr, we have Reddit. Though there's platforms out there in social media that's promoting this type of thing, and they tell that that child, oh, so you're attracted to girls. Well, you're, you're probably should be a boy there. You know, the agenda out there on the social media is, is really strong. And the kids listen to that, especially, you know, in the, in those ages between, you know, 11 and 19, they're, they're very vulnerable to social media. And so it's looking at where are they going on the internet? What, who are their friends? What are their friends telling them? And looking at that and asking them about friendships and being blunt and saying, so, you know, are you interested in somebody? Do you have a girlfriend that you're acting like a boy? Um, and also going to the school and finding out what's being taught in school. That's another avenue where this lie as far as transgenderism is coming in. It's being taught in the school. But again, it's coming and looking at this child and understanding that her wanting to be a boy or him wanting to be a girl is not the issue. That's the symptom. And so it's helping your child to figure out what is going on underneath and counseling, finding a counselor in, in your area, or, you know, there's counselors online too that deal with transgender issues and understanding that there's something in your child. And if I can put it this way, that's broken, that's severely wounded and they need help in sorting that out. It's also looking at their behaviors. Are they depressed? Do you know, are they cutting? You know, that's a relief of stress. It's a relief, you know, it helps them to relieve pain. So it's looking at, you know, did there, are their grades changing? You know, or did they suddenly start dressing differently? Are they asking for things that are more boy-like than girl-like? But again, you can't fix them, okay? And it's okay, parents, for you guys to have boundaries. 
saying, I'm not buying you testosterone. It's okay if you don't, you know, bow to their demands because this child could be very demanding. This is the pronoun I'm going to go by. This is the name I'm going to change it to. And these are the things you need to call me when you address me. And it's okay to tell them, I can't do that. Kathy Grace? Yeah. And, and to that point, and we've only got about a minute left for this one, but parents are often told that if you don't immediately agree with and support uh, your child's identity, they're going to kill themselves. What's your response to that? I would say challenge that. A lot of times that's emotional manipulation for get, to get the parent to bow to that demand, to make them think that if you don't do this, then you don't find me worthy, so I'm just going to kill myself. Well, challenge that. You know, in suicide prevention, they ask or they say, ask that person, so do you have a plan? If you're going to kill yourself, how are you going to carry that out? You know, and be watchful of that because sometimes it is a serious threat. But it's having that discernment, asking the Lord, is this real? How far do I need to be concerned about this? Because there is emotional manipulation behind that that could be possible that if you're if you don't bow to this, then I will get you to bow to this by telling you this is what I'm going to do. And Kathy Grace, one final question in about 30 seconds. Where would you send a parent who might find themselves in this situation, wants to find some good advice where they can support their child, but still defend the truth? Sure. So the change movement is one of them, changemovement.com. There's also portlandfellowship.com. They have a hope group that you can zoom into, uh, and that's going to be starting at the beginning of next year, so in January. Um, and then there's a Restored Hope Network that you can go on and look at um, if you're looking for a local ministry in your area. Uh, David Pickup is a great counselor, and I'm sure he could give a referral as far as other counselors that he knows, and maybe he would even take them as a client. Kathy Grace Duncan, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And we do hope this has been helpful to you. These are challenging days, but there is answers. There is always hope in Jesus, which is why we should fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 